Let's take our Bibles and we will turn to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. As we come to this letter to the church at Smyrna, we're going to see Christ speak to the church concerning persecution. Persecution is something that has afflicted the faithful followers of God through both testaments. When you look in the Old Testament, you see prophets and people who were committed to being followers of God persecuted by the unrighteous. Sometimes even within their own community, they were persecuted for being followers of God. And certainly this is also true in the New Testament as we see the fledgling church facing the fires of persecution from those without. Today, we see persecution around the world. We find many followers of Christ who fear the forces of the persecutors who can storm into a worship service at any time and drag them away, imprisoning them and even executing them. Persecution has been part of the history of the people of God from the beginning. Even Abel in the book of Genesis was persecuted by his brother Cain for his faithful following of God. So from the beginning until now, until the end, there will be persecution. Here in Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11, we find our Lord speaking to the church at Smyrna. And we're going to see the words of the Lord, the words that the Lord had to say to this suffering church. And what we're going to do first is look at what the people of Smyrna were facing in verse 8, it very simply says, to the angel, now we have seen that angel refers to the pastor or messenger of the church, to the angel of the church of Smyrna, write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Let's talk about Smyrna for a moment. Smyrna was a city that was a bustling port city about 35 miles up the coast from Ephesus. It was known for its beauty. As a matter of fact, in some of the ancient writings, it was described as a crown because as you would pull into the harbor, you could see the architecture of the buildings, and it was designed in such a way that it resembled very much a crown. It was a producer of myrrh, a fragrance that is used for embalming. This was a metropolis that also had quite a few religious communities. There were temples to many of the Greek gods in Smyrna. And there were faithful followers of that religion. There was also a center for worship of the emperor. At this time, it was Domitian, which, of course, he played for all it was worth. He loved to be worshipped. And then there was also a place for the Jews, the tabernacle, the, or excuse me, the synagogue of, of the Jews. Uh, there was a large community of Jewish followers, Jewish believers that were a part of Smyrna. So here is the church in the midst of this community that had many faiths, many very, very zealous followers of those faiths. And while many of those faiths got along, 
Many of them focused their persecution and their hatred toward the church of Jesus Christ. First of all, there were the Greeks who saw them as foolish. How could you believe in somebody who was subject to crucifixion and then you claim he was resurrected? Utter foolishness. There were also the Romans. They looked at the followers and they said, they're traitors. They should be worshiping Domitian. They claim allegiance to some kingdom other than the kingdom of Rome. So we should reject them. And then there were the Jews. The Jews viewed them as a cult. They saw them as a cancer that had come upon Judaism and it needed to be stopped. So Smyrna was a place where the Christians faced a great deal of persecution, a great deal of suffering, and they had to hear a word from the Lord. But before we look into that word from the Lord, let's look at how the Lord identifies himself. Let me say this, when you face suffering, when you are struggling, whether it's persecution or something else, you need to hear a word from the Lord. We need to think about who he is. If all I'm doing is focusing on the pain and the struggle and the suffering that I'm experiencing without looking at who it is who watches over my life and directs my life, I will lose perspective. So here, the Lord Jesus Christ, in his message to the church at Smyrna, identifies himself in a unique way to the needs of this church. Again, the words of the eighth verse says this, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. You know, each one of these letters to the churches has a unique identification of Jesus Christ. And when you go into the text of the letter, you see why this unique identification. For the people of Smyrna who were suffering, they needed to remember that God is in control, that He is over all. And that's why Jesus identifies Himself in this verse as the first and the last. It's a repeat of the first chapter, verses 17 and 18. And it is a reminder to us of the deity of Jesus Christ. You see, the title first and last is something that is reserved for God alone. No one else can say, I am the first and the last, God alone. So as Jesus utters these words, it is an identification of Jesus as God. He is reminding the people of Smyrna, as you face persecution, as you endure suffering, you are doing it for God in the person of Jesus Christ. You see, we need to remember that with this first and last, with this no beginning and no end aspect of who he is, with this eternality, Jesus Christ is over all of creation. Paul wrote these words to the church at Colossae when he said this, For by him, and him he is referring to Jesus Christ, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. So what is it saying? It's saying that Jesus Christ is the creator, but in addition to being the creator, he is the one who holds creation itself together. 
So when he's saying, I am the first and the last, it is a reminder to the people at Smyrna that although you're going through terrible times, intense struggle and suffering, I who speak to you am the creator. I who speak to you am the one that holds everything together. I who speak to you am God. Important for the people of Smyrna to remember. Jesus is spoken of by the writer of Hebrews in this way. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And look at this. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. We need to remember that Jesus as the first and the last is the beginning and the end and everything in between. And that by his powerful word, he keeps the universe together. When our world looks like it's being ripped apart, isn't it great to know that we have Jesus who holds everything together? But then the text goes on, and Jesus identifies himself not only as the first and the last, showing him to be God, but also as the one who died and came to life. Now, just as the first part speaks of the deity of Jesus Christ, he is God, So the second part speaks of the humanity of Christ. In order to understand who Jesus is, we have to understand that Jesus is God, but Jesus is also fully man. So he is fully God, fully man. As God, he controls everything. As man, he was the sacrifice for us, for all of our sin. When it says in this text that Jesus died, He's speaking to a church that was experiencing death as well by persecution. Jesus is sharing with them that I experienced the suffering and the struggle that you are going through because I experienced death, but he's saying so much more to them. You see, it is through the death of Jesus Christ that we have the forgiveness of sin. It is through his humanity that we are able to experience right relationship with God because he died on the cross and in victory over death... He came to life again. His coming to life is what brings us life. For it is through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection that sin is vanquished and that we have a right standing with God when we place our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. God reminds us in his word, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. This is how we come into right standing with God, because of him who died and came to life. John, in his letter, wrote, he is the propitiation, in other words, the satisfaction for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Jesus Christ is the solution to man's sin. So he's reminding Those Christians in Smyrna, yes, you are undergoing persecution. Yes, they are trying to shut down your sharing the gospel. But no, they cannot gain victory because of who Jesus is. Think about this for a moment. Where persecution has thrived, so has the church. Why? Not because of the church, but because of Jesus Christ. So he's reminding the people at Smyrna that he is their savior, 
that he will uphold them, that he is the God-man. They need to focus on what he shares. Then we move into the next part of the letter. And as we come to the ninth verse, we find that the Word of God is speaking directly to the people of Smyrna, but he's speaking to believers of all ages who will hear the Word of the Lord. And look at what Jesus shares as he speaks to them. He's sharing with them that whenever you suffer, I know. I know your tribulation and poverty, but you are rich in the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Let's look at the first part of this statement. And let's try and gain some insight into what's being said. When the Scripture says, I know your tribulation, when we use the word know, often we think in terms of, I am aware of. I've heard about it. I know something of this. That's not the word that's used here. The word in the original language carries with it the idea of an intimate connection. More than just an awareness it is an engagement with them. In other words, as they suffered, Jesus not only knew about it, but he knew what it was like. He could see what they were going through. He could experience what they were going through. He knew them in this way. The Scripture was reminding them that what they were going through did not escape the notice of God. And let me share this with you. At times when we suffer... We're tempted to ask the question, where's God? Why doesn't He intervene? Why doesn't He stop what I'm going through? Here, the Word of God is saying, I know your tribulation. I see what's going on. I am not distant. I am perfectly and fully engaged with you as you experience your tribulation. And that word tribulation, by the way, is a word that carries with it the idea of intense suffering. It has the idea of fiery, fiery persecution. This is what the church at Smyrna was experiencing, and Jesus was fully aware. Look at what else he states. Not only were they experiencing that tribulation, but they were experiencing poverty. For many in the church at Smyrna, there was this shunning from the community. If you were a follower of Jesus Christ, people would not do business with you. You were shut out of your families often when you would turn to Christ. And so, for many in the church, poverty was a reality. They wondered how they would survive without being able to do business. They suffered intensely. And yet, Jesus Christ knew about their suffering. In Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews reminds us, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with full confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. This is what God was reminding the people of when he said, 
I know about your tribulation. I know about your poverty. It is not escaping my notice. In fact, I am going through it with you. Remember when Saul, who later became Paul, persecuted the church. What did Jesus ask Saul? Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? With each persecution, Jesus knows and experiences that same persecution. And the same with the poverty. As the people of Smyrna were facing poverty, they had to deal with those who rejected them because of their faith. In fact, James reminds us that if we suffer financially because we're following Jesus, we need perspective. James writes, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? We need to take the long view. If we suffer financially for following Jesus Christ, and some have, the long view is this is but for a short time. I have eternity to look forward to. Something else, slander. Look at how it's framed in this verse, verse 9. I know your tribulation, your poverty, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not but are a synagogue of Satan. Now, this statement is a very strong statement. Slander is a horrible, horrible accusation leveled unjustly against the children of God. In the first century, there were many accusations that were leveled against the early church. For instance, the early church was accused of cannibalism. Can you believe that? Do you know why? The Lord's Supper, they were talking about eating the flesh and drinking the blood. So in slander, those who had an axe to grind against the church spread that they were cannibals. They were accused of incest because they called each other brother and sister and married. So incest was an accusation leveled against them. They were accused of child abduction because what the Romans would do, if they didn't want a baby, they would take the baby and lay it in a field and walk away. Infanticide, allowing the elements to take it. You know what the early church did when they found a baby laying in a field? Precious life was saved. So they were accused of being child abductors. Many accusations were leveled against them, and yet the church kept on. They stayed true. They lived past those unjust criticisms. Now, much of the slander was perpetrated by the Jewish community. And listen, when we find passages of Scripture like this that speak of the Jewish community being a synagogue of Satan, let me just clearly say there are some who have taken a passage like this and they have used it as an excuse for anti-Semitism. We need to be, as Christians, as far away from anti-Semitism as we can possibly be. And I feel I need to share this, especially given the events of yesterday. The Jews are loved by God and they should be loved by God's people. 
We should never look at the Jewish people and refer to them in a disparaging way or in a hateful way. We need to love them. We need to pray for them. We need to protect them. But when the Lord Jesus Christ in this passage speaks of this particular synagogue being a synagogue of Satan, he was communicating about a particular group of Jewish people who were involved in intense persecution of the church at Smyrna. So we need to frame it in its historical context in order to understand what's going on. You see, this text is sharing with us that they claimed to be Jews. That's an unusual statement when we look at it on its face. But when we look in the rest of Scripture, we find that the Word of God identifies what a person who is truly a Jew is. For instance, in John chapter 8, if you'll remember, there was a group of Jewish followers who accused Jesus of not being Messiah, not being who he said he was. And if you remember in their interaction, Jesus actually said to this group, you are of your father, the devil. In other words, by trying to crush the message of the Messiah, they were accomplishing Satan's work. Here in Revelation, that same statement is being made about people who are trying to crush the work of Jesus' church who are speaking on the authority of Jesus Christ as they follow the Great Commission. And so what Jesus is saying is this synagogue that is trying to crush the church who is slandering you, who is telling everyone untruths about you to not listen to the message that you share, they are actually accomplishing the work of Satan. How so? What is Satan's purpose? To cast doubt on God's truth. He began it in the beginning, in the Garden of Eden, telling Eve that God didn't mean what he said. And he continues it. And so here in the book of Revelation, Jesus is speaking to the synagogue that was doing the work of Satan by trying to harm the church of God. This is not to be said of all Jews, but it is to be said of these particular Jews in this particular city. And we need to understand that. How does a Jewish person really come to the place to where they're right with God? Paul speaks to this in the book of Romans. And he says this, no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And the circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. See, the problem with many within the Jewish community was they were attempting to follow God externally from the outside in. They could have a right relationship with God. What the Word of God teaches is we have a relationship with God from the inside out. If what I'm doing outwardly isn't motivated by what has happened to me inwardly, then it's nothing. So here, the Word of God is reminding these faithful followers of God that they need to stand strong. They need to remain true to God in the face of such persecution. To the Ephesians... The Apostle Paul wrote the following, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. 
For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities and against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Listen, when we face persecution, we are not only facing the persecution of man, but we are facing satanic persecution. Those who are motivated by Satan to crush our faith. This is what Jesus was saying to the church at Smyrna, but he says more. You see, he says, whatever we suffer, it is but for a short time. Look carefully at the 10th verse with me. In verse 10, Jesus says, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for 10 days you will have tribulation but be faithful unto death. Now let's think about what's being shared here. Number one, what is the understandable response to the threat of persecution? Fear. None of us want to experience torture. None of us want to experience rejection by an entire community. None of us want to experience unjust slander, do we? So we would fear that. And if our eyes are only on the persecutors, fear will capture our hearts. What Jesus is inviting us to do is to not look at the fear and the intimidation that the persecutors would put upon us, but to look to the Lord Jesus Christ, the first and the last, the one who died and who came to life. He is to be our focal point. And so it is him, it is Jesus who says, do not fear. Not hollow words, but a reminder. You listen to me and you follow me. Now look at the warning. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. And then some of the experiences that they will face are given to them. It says, behold, which in Scripture always means, look at this. The devil is about to throw some of you into prison. We return back to that idea that much of the persecution is inspired by Satan himself. And what he's sharing with them is this. Some of them will experience prison. And they're going to be tested. This word tested carries with it the idea of severe testing. Intense testing. And then these words, for 10 days you will have tribulation. Now, when I looked at potential interpretations of that for 10 days, you will experience persecution. Nobody knows what it means. I had 10 different explanations. One explanation was even when you were taken to the arena, and by the way, there was an arena in Smyrna, if you were to face death by being torn apart by animals or by gladiators, you had 10 days once you were taken into the arena. We don't know what it means, but here's what we do know. The persecution would have a limited amount of time, and it would stop. Whatever 10 days means, it means that God had a ceiling on the amount of time that he would allow for them to experience this persecution. Now, the persecution went on. As a matter of fact, some years after John records this vision, 
Polycarp, who was the bishop of Smyrna, suffered martyrdom because of his faith. So 10 days, we're not sure what it means, but here's what we do know. As I said, there's a ceiling to the amount that God allows the church to suffer. And that's something we can take solace in. If the 10 days extends beyond your life, what we need to remember, and it's going to be a reminder in the closing thoughts of this passage, is this. This life is not where this life ends. When this body is laid aside, there is a life that is eternal. Sometimes the ultimate deliverance for those who are persecuted is to be brought to glory where they will never experience another second or millisecond of persecution. They will be with their God. So God was saying a limited time and it will stop. Now, we come to the latter part of the 10th verse and we see this command to be faithful, which by the way, faithful means they keep on keeping on. They are operating by faith and not by sight. Be faithful unto death. In other words, even if it means that your life is taken for remaining true to your faith, you remain true. Let me just say this. When we look at our nation, we have been blessed so far to not experience that kind of persecution to where it's a matter of life and death. There have been some in our country who have experienced death for their faith, but only few. But it doesn't mean that that's the way it will always be. As we look at the climate of our nation, we can see more and more hostility toward people of faith, more and more resentment toward people of faith. And as believers, we need to be prepared to be faithful. Listen, the time to get faithful isn't when persecution comes. It's hard to get your bearings when you've been unfaithful and suddenly it becomes more difficult to be faithful and you say to yourselves, oh, I'm going to become more faithful now. It doesn't work that way. What we need to remember is being faithful is where we are no matter what we experience. And if I'm already faithful, that persecution will make that faithfulness stronger. But if I'm not faithful when things are easy, what in the world makes me think I'll be faithful when things get tough? So this call to be faithful is a call to believers to be serious about their walk with God. And I think it's a call to us all that we need to do this. And here's why. As I am faithful here, there is a recognition that God gives to those who are faithful in the sense of a reward. Look at the last sentence of that 10th verse. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Now, the crown of life is something that is mentioned several times in Scripture. And it's a promise, a promise that God rewards those who are faithful to Him. The Scripture speaks of rewards for faithful followers of God. In fact, the Apostle Paul shared, and I think I somehow missed this on my slide, but listen to what he says in this. 
oh, I, I forgot to put this slide up. You know, this is the second week in a row. I've gotten so excited about what I'm preaching, I, I forget to flip buttons, right? <laughs> so if you're filling out the outline, those are the answers. Write them down quick. But the verse that we want to look at is this. 1 Corinthians 9.25, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Now let's talk about that word wreath for a moment. When in Revelation chapter 2, end of verse 10, he says there is the crown of life. That word crown is not like the crown that a king wears. The word crown really is the wreath that is spoken of in this text. And it's the victor's crown. It's the one who wins, which importantly, this is what we do. This is what we experience when we face persecution. Even if I face death, ultimately I win. That is the message of this text. Death is not the finality for this body. But it ushers me into the presence of God and it brings me into the opportunity to receive the victor's crown. That's what we have to look forward to. Rather than looking to all of the struggles that we experience, we can look to that. This is something that Paul recognized. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, the Apostle Paul was near to his own martyrdom. Last letter that the Apostle Paul wrote, and he's writing to Timothy. And listen to his words. For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering and the time for my departure has come. And by departure, he meant death. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. This is what God promises the faithful. As you face persecution, the worst that man can do to you is take your life. But even when they take your life, they usher you into the presence of God and the reward of God. And that's the perspective that we have to keep. Final thought. What is in store for the faithful? Not only winning the crown, but we won't be hurt by the second death. Look at verse 11. Verse 11 says this, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Now this is such an important perspective as well. Listen, again, the Scripture, and in each one of these letters it will say this, He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. The Spirit is telling us today that there are greater things than this physical life and that we have the Lord who is the master and the Lord of this life and the life that is to come. And so when he closes with a statement, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death, what is he talking about? First of all, the second death. It's a reference to those who are damned because they have never placed their personal faith in God through the person of Jesus Christ. Toward the end of Revelation, it says this, blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection over such the second death has no power, 
but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with Him for a thousand years. How's that sound? Tremendous, isn't it? That's the blessing that we have to look forward to. But then it goes on. Later in the passage, it says of the second death, then death and Hades. Now, death would be those who are spiritually dead. Hades would be the holding place for those who are spiritually dead. They were taken and they were thrown into the lake of fire, which is hell. Now, I know it's not politically correct to talk about hell in church anymore, but the Bible talks about it, so we need to. Hell is a place for those who reject the message of Jesus Christ. And we need to unapologetically talk about the second death because our Lord talks about the second death. There are people who will experience it. The majority of people will experience it. And that should touch our hearts. But for us, there is hope. Jesus' words that you will not experience the second death are words of hope for people who are being persecuted intensely. And when he says in this text, the one who conquers, who is he referring to? I believe the word of God very clearly is referring to those who have placed their personal faith in Jesus Christ. The scripture tells us in Romans, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. Now look at this last phrase, in Christ Jesus our Lord. How do we find ourselves in Christ Jesus? By our personal faith in Jesus Christ. When I place my trust in Christ as Savior, I am in Christ. When you are in Christ, you are more than a conqueror. Nothing separates you from the love of God. John shares this. This is the testimony. God gave us eternal life. And this life is, now here's that word again, in His Son. Whoever has the Son has the life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have the life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. As some people read the book of Revelation and they see passages like the lake of fire and as they see passages about being hurt by the second death, they can look at these passages and they can find fear in these things and rightly so. A temporal death, that means I just put aside this body, is but a moment. But an eternal death, where I'm separated from God and under the wrath of God for an eternity, is something to fear. But the beauty of Scripture is this. The one who is the first and the last, who died and came to life, can deliver you from the second death. By placing your faith in Jesus Christ, by recognizing that He is the one who died on the cross in your place that He might accept the penalty of death that we deserve, 
when I trust him as my savior, then I can experience that deliverance, that hope, that peace. I can know that I have eternal life. My hope this morning is that everybody in this room will avoid the second death because you're in Christ. Being in Christ means that you take God at His word, that when you place your faith in Jesus' sacrifice on the cross for you, you have life. My encouragement to you is don't guess about this. Don't wonder about this. Be sure where you stand and commit your life to Christ. Be faithful. Be in Him. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this text. Thank You for You being the one who knows when we go through struggle and tribulation. You are there with us as we experience it. So God, my prayer is that we, as followers of Jesus Christ, that we will be faithful. But Lord, there is a lost world out there who faces the second death. Our prayer is for them. We would ask that they would listen to the gospel, that they would stop the slander and the persecution of followers of Jesus, and that they will humbly come before you and open their hearts to you, that they might know what it is to know the one who is the first and the last, the one who died and came to life. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.